A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and we'll start off with a letter from a listener before we get to today's episode. Great letter, short and to the point. Um, here it goes. I came across this picture in a Harnof elevator and thought of your recent episode about the Gra and Zionism. And then he attaches a picture of what he saw in this Harnof elevator, so I'm going to read it to you. It's in Hebrew, but I could translate. Hareini darb eretz hakodesh l'shem mitzvas yishuv eretz yisrael k'may shekasuv batayra v'yirishtem oisa v'yishavtem ba. I live in the Holy Land to keep the mitzvah of yishuv eretz yisrael as it says in the Torah. But the best is the bottom line, and it says on this sign here. I'm reading it. This sign is produced by the descendants and the the uh, ones who continue the work of the students of the Vilna Gain in order to bring the Geula closer. Well, because it's Yerushalayim, people feel that they need to write editorials on these signs. So someone else... Uh, wrote on the sign, uh, so decided to add their comments that this is according to the Ramban, that it's a mitzvah, not according to the Vilna Gain. So you see that the whole um, uh, topic that we discussed recently about the Vilna Gain's position and his students moving to Yisrael and the Sefer Kol HaTayr and all that is still uh, fought about and live and well even in Harnov elevators. So thank you for sending in that. That's really, really exciting. What I wanted to speak a little bit about tonight, just the other day, was the art site of one of the great Torah leaders of the recent generation, Ramatcha Gifter, and um, really an amazing person. And I had the privilege of meeting him once in his later years. And he wasn't well, was not well in his later years. He um, we couldn't really talk to him, schmooze with him. He was sick, and I I lived I grew up in Muncie, and and his son-in-law Ramchaim Foyer was a rabbi there at the time, and 
we we you know the word went out that that uh, Rav Matcha Gifter was in town, and we all went to see him. And it was just amazing how he was someone who at that point couldn't really speak, no one could really talk to him, and here hundreds of people from the neighborhood were coming out, or at least tens of people. I was a little kid; it could be, it seemed like hundreds. We're just coming, streaming to see him, just to see who Rabat Chagifter was. It's a type of impression he made, and um, there's many people around today who knew him well. You know, I only got to see him once when he was sick. He was someone who was very recent. And but I'm, instead of talking about him specifically, um, I'll speak a little bit about something that he often spoke about, and that was his years and tells. He wrote about it. He spoke about it. He didn't stop speaking about it. Now. A lot of people who learned in the pre-war Litvish yeshivas didn't always go ahead and talk about it. Uh, many of the ones who survived were in a trauma or escaped or refugees or anything like that were in a trauma. Many of them did not want to talk about it. Many of them focused on rebuilding. Ramat Chagifter focused on both. And he spoke always about Tells and his Rabbeim there and his stories there. And he also was one of the great builders and Rosh Yeshiva of Tells in America. So he connected uh, both worlds. So it's an opportunity to do what he did, to speak about the Tells of the pre-war era, which we did already part one, the early years. Now we'll speak a little bit about the interwar period, the later years. It's actually an interesting story um, from before World War One. still. After the Valazhin Yeshiva was closed in 1892, so... The Purim after that, either the following Purim, maybe a year later, not sure, because the Valajan Yeshiva closed right before, it was like a month before Purim. So there was a bit of a rivalry following the closing of Valajan Yeshiva when it was open, was the undisputed uh, king of all the Litvishi Yeshivas. It was the original Yeshiva, it was the greatest Yeshiva. The question was, now that there was this void, who is going to take over? Who would be the best yeshiva around now? So there was a, a bit of a, I guess, a friendly rivalry between Slabatka and Tells. Who is the, taking over as the top yeshiva after Valazhin? And Tells, which is very much part of their identity, was very proud, very proud of their with their role in the yeshiva world. And they felt that they were the true successors to Valazhin. So they put on a Purim play that year or the next year. And one of the scenes in that play was the ghosts of Valazhin came down to to Tells and handed over the scepter, so to speak, to make it uh, that now that Tells is the center of Taira, and now they're the best yeshiva, and they're the true successors to Valazhin. And in this Tells self-perception, that's definitely how it was. And that will kind of bring us into the interwar period, because that's the perception they continue to have, and and to a certain extent, it was justified. It was really one of the top places, and um, they played a major role in in Torah and educational life during that time. So they really, the interwar uh, period starts before the World War One, actually, because it starts that the 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 time shift really begins before that with the passing of Reblazer Gordon. Reblazer tells her the. First Rosh Hashiva, main Rosh Hashiva for many years, the one who built the Yeshiva, and he dies in London on a fundraising trip. And his son in law, Rabbi Yosef Bloch, returns to the Yeshiva. He had been there earlier and he had left because of 
the different Muslim disputes that had been going on, which we discussed in part one. And now he makes his grand return. Um, he had a different style of leadership, Rabbi Yisuf Leib. He brings Musr finally into the yeshiva, becomes a full-fledged Musr yeshiva at this point. And his leadership and way of Musr really brings tells into the modern era. Rabbi Yisuf Leib was somewhat a Talmud of Kelm, and kind of. He considered himself a Talmud of the altar of Kelm. He was there for a period of time. And he, but he definitely developed his own way of thinking. When he left Tells the first time, he became a Rav and a Rosh Yeshiva. He had a Yeshiva in a nearby town called Shadava. And he brought some of them with him from Tells when he left. And then when he came back to Tells a few years later, he brought some of his Shadava uh, students. Uh, he developed his students in his own way. He also kicked out some of the problematic Tellsers when he came back. And he becomes in charge of the yeshiva. And he's a, a very dynamic, very charismatic. He's the one who gives the shmuzin in the yeshiva, not the mashgiach in the yeshiva, which was also unique, that the Rosh Yeshiva of the yeshiva gave the shmuzin. He's also the rav of the town. So he wears many hats. He was also a leader on the national level. We'll see later how about his involvement in the Agudas Yisrael. And his way of musr, and he makes the yeshiva a a uh, muster yeshiva, a full-fledged muster yeshiva, all the uh, problems which had been there beforehand, he takes care of those problems in one way or another, and most of them had had uh, toned down by by now anyway. It was already a different period of time. And he uh, makes it into a unique brand of muster. He's the first one, uh, and he's already the third generation of the muster movement from Yisrael Salanter. He's the first one to turn away from focusing exclusively on man, on the internal struggles of man, on his Yetzirah, on his Midas, on his characteristics and qualities and his his uh, working on himself, and turn towards more ideas. Uh, emuna, Bechira, freedom of choice, nature, Nisim, miracles. It's a much more intellectual form of Musr. It's, it's very influenced by Jewish philosophy. It's also influenced by Kabbalah, like of the Ramchal. It's much less emotional, Musr. It's much less about the internal struggle um, of, of man and more about how to view the world in a philosophical sense, in the ideas that surround uh, man, which, which eventually in the third and fourth and fifth generations of the Musr movement, this not this specific brand of Musr, but the, the turn away from man and towards ideas becomes characteristic of the later Musr movement. And that becomes Rabbi Rucham Levavitz. That becomes Rav Dessler even later on. Uh, but Rabbi Yosef Leib, in his own unique way, is the first one to, to do that. And his shmuzin, in many of which were in his private home, in the, with a, small groups, were called Shi'ure Das. Um, first of all, the, the fact that it wasn't called a shmuz, it was called a shir. A shir in yeshiva language has a connotation of, you know, in, more intellectual, in-depth. It's not a shmuz, which is just schmoozing, you know, talking talking things over. But it's a shir. It's an, an, more of an intellectual shir. And the fact that it's called a shir of das. Das meaning, you know, a, a higher form of knowledge. So that... Uh, characterizes uh, what Musser was. He, what part of uh, Rebbe Sifle Bloch's philosophy 
was not only to continue and even make much stronger the structure of the Tal's yeshiva, like it had already started in his father-in-law's time, but very rigid structure, which part of which he was influenced by his Kelm upbringing. The Sidre HaYeshiva were very structured, the daily schedule, the classes, the Shi'urim that you went up from one, one level to the next. But also there was an, a certain aristocracy that he himself had that bearing, or a very regal bearing, nobility almost. He was like a prince of a man. And, but also that's what he imbued in his students. And that was he, what he wanted to be the style of the Tal Shiva, and he felt that that would be a way to combat the remnants of the Haskalah. It wasn't really the Haskalah anymore, more the modernity, the challenges of modernity and the new movements and the new ways. You have to remember where Tels is located in Lithuania. It's in western Lithuania, an area that the Jews called Jamut, which was closer to the German border, closer to Memel and Königsberg, and the German border was heavily influenced by that during World War I. The Tels doesn't go into exile. They stay in Tels, and the area is taken over by the German army. They also come back to haunt them because they got along pretty well with the German authorities during World War I, and they had pretty good memories mm-hmm. of the occupation, which uh, would, would not be the same way the second time around. Um, after World War I, um, which we're finally getting to, is, is when the Tel Yeshiva reaches a new golden age. You have to understand the borders of interwar, Lithua- interwar Lithuania, newly independent Lithuania. They're no longer under the Russian Empire. They're a republic, but they're a very small country. Almost all of what we know and we call today the Litvish yeshivas, the Lithuanian yeshivas, were in interwar Poland in a district called the Kersi district, which was northeastern Poland. And in the borders of interwar Lithuania were very small. There were very few yeshivas there. Slabatka, Kelm, Panovich, and Tels. All the other yeshivas that we know of, you know, the borders changed a lot. And uh, one of the most confusing aspects of modern Jewish history and trying to give it over is to try to understand how the borders work. Because not only are they so different today, when I bring the groups there, we're crossing borders when we shouldn't be, according to the story, and we're staying in the same country when it seems like we should be crossing borders and we can't keep on forgetting which country we're in and which one it was. And it gets very confusing on the trips and uh, all the more so when we're not actually there or in front of a map or anything. So the borders do get confusing. But in interwar Lithuania, Tells is one of the only yeshivas in independent Lithuania, not in Poland. And therefore they're not part of the famous Vadha Yeshivas network. They're a different situation. They're in... In Poland, they're excuse me, they're not in Poland. They're in Lithuania, and they're 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 you know the main yeshiva to a certain extent, especially after part of Slobodka moves to Israel in Lithuania. They attracted a lot of Westerners, German students, even American students. Or Matri Gifter is a great example of that. Reb Shimon Schwab before he went to the Mir from when he grew up in Frankfurt in Germany, but he was in um, in Tells also. The main Rebbe. In the yeshiva at the time, since Reb Shimon Shkup's leaving the yeshiva in the early part of the century, is Reb Chaim Rabinovich, Reb Chaim Telzer. When he dies in 1930, his son, Reb Azriel Rabinovich, becomes the Rebbe in the yeshiva. Unfortunately, Reb Chaim Telzer, uh, most of his family was killed in the war. Reb Chaim Telzer died before the war, he died in 1930, but his he was the attraction. He was a big Lamdan, a big Talmud Chacham, 
and he was the attraction of some of the great minds to come to the yeshiva. Over 300 Talmidim were in, in the yeshiva, in the main part of the yeshiva, during, during the early, already in the early 1920s. And what happens is, is that, um, Rebbe Yosef Leib doesn't limit, doesn't limit the Tells Yeshiva to be the great Tells Yeshiva of the older students, which already had, like I said, over 300. He creates an entire infrastructure of institutions surrounding Tells. He starts in 1920 elementary schools. He already starts during World War I, actually. In 1920, he also opens a mechina, which would be, which was a high school, a high school for boys. In 1926, he opens a teacher seminary to train teachers, okay, men, to train men teachers, a four-year course. And he had all types of um, ideas that were part of the curriculum. He had the 19 letters of Rav Shamshin or Fal Hirsch was part of the curriculum. Right, I was bringing in the ideas of Rav Shamshin or Fal Hirsch into Eastern Europe, and there were not that many who did so at the time. In 1927, he starts the Yavne High School for Girls, which is a gymnasium, and it was a regular high school. This is the time that Sarashanir's movement of Vesiakov is spreading in Poland, and Rebbeisef Leiblach does it already on his own in Tels. In 1929, he starts a Kailal Rabbanim, a Kailal to train rabbis. This is a rabbinical training school, another separate institution. In 1930, he starts a woman's teacher's seminary shortly before he dies, which was a two-year course, because you now he has girls' schools, so he has a two-year uh, uh, a teacher's seminary. Now, this mechina that he started, which was the boys' high school, had secular studies, which was a revolutionary at the time, a boys' high school that had secular studies, and in fact, that helped him save his yeshiva because in 1924, when the Lithuanian government changed the rules of the army draft, that yeshiva guys would not get an army deferment unless the yeshiva was accredited by the government as having secular studies. So this is the Lithuanian government. It did not affect any of the Litvish yeshivas that were in Poland at the time, obviously. But in Lithuania, it did. And Slobotka, which was one of the only, basically the only other major yeshiva there at the time, they had a whole plan afterwards to move the yeshiva to Eretz Yisrael, to Hebron, and one of the main reasons discussed in an earlier episode was because of this Lithuanian change, a law change in the army draft, and to get out of the draft, they moved a large branch of the yeshiva to Eretz Yisrael. Tells, they were able to get around the problem because the Mechina had secular studies, they linked on paper they linked the two institutions, the Mechina and the Yeshiva, to be one institution. They were able to establish to the government authorities that the high school did have secular studies. And therefore, they were able to convince them that this is the whole Yeshiva, basically, as if the whole Yeshiva had secular studies, but obviously in the bigger Yeshiva, the main Yeshiva, there was no secular studies. But they were able to link that to, to uh, on paper for the government that it would be a way to get out of the draft. But the fact that the Yeshiva did was a big move and considered very controversial at the time. Not only that, but because of Rabbi Yosef Leib and later his son, Rabbi Yitzchak Bloch's involvement in the Agudas Yisrael, and he went to the Knesset Gedolahs of Agudas Yisrael, and, um, and they, they were big speakers. The Talzers were very dynamic, charismatic, powerful speakers, which was also unique. 
um, amongst the Litvisha Russia Yeshiva at the time. They were not known to be uh, great speakers, but the Telzers were, the Blachs were, which Rav Gifter, who I mentioned earlier, definitely was. He was famous for being an amazing speaker. So he probably got it from his Tel's uh, roots, or he probably naturally had it too, that's the truth. But in, co- in that context, their place was very politically active. They were very involved, even in the yeshiva, they were involved in the Agudas Yisrael. There were newspapers that Rebbeisif Lay put out in, in Tel's in Hebrew and in Yiddish for a yeshiva, for a rav, to be putting out newspapers in two languages. That's already, again, an amazingly unique thing. It linked a lot of the institutions together. All of these institutions that I mentioned, the teacher seminaries, the girls' schools, the mechina, the kailal, they're all linked to the Tel's yeshiva. They're all linked to Rebbe Sifle Blach. He brings in all his kids to be involved in the yeshiva. He brings Ram Yitzchak Blach, who becomes, after Rebbe Sifle dies, he becomes the Rav and the Rosh Yeshiva. He brings Rebbe Zalman Blach, who's actually his oldest son, as the Mashgiach. And later on, in 1927, in a move that caused a lot of controversy in the yeshiva, he brings his youngest son, Rebellion Meir Blach, into the yeshiva. Um, he had been a businessman living in Memel. He had married a daughter of a Memel businessman, and he was, he was successful. And the boys in the yeshiva didn't like the fact that Yosef Leib is bringing his son, who's a balabas, to become a rebbe in the yeshiva. They protested, and as we spoke about in the first episode of part one of Tells, the yeshiva, Tells yeshiva in the pre-World War I era had a... Uh, a, um, a history of rebelling and revolts, so they tried to carry that over into the interwar period, and um, and they tried to protest Rebellion Mayor Blach's uh, appointment as a Rebbe in the yeshiva. Um, some of them didn't respect him at first, and they tried shutting the yeshiva down, but the the uh, the aura of revolt and, uh, and the... the it was it was already you know it wasn't it wasn't that atmosphere anymore at that time so it didn't really go by and eventually Rebellion Mayor Blach was very much respected and he's the one who built the Tel's Yeshiva in the post-war as a as a one of the great Rosh Yeshivas of his day. Now um, so he also had a son-in-law Matul Katz who was also involved in the in the in in the institutions that Rebbeisifle uh, built and he's also one of the ones who built the Tel's Yeshiva in America. So this, there's this whole empire um, that is mainly by the Blach family. Of course, Reb Chaim tells us still there, and when he dies, his son Reb Azriel is a Rebbe in the yeshiva. There are other Rebbeim, but there's this empire of Torah, of education, of activism, and this tells li- larger institutions is literally changing the face of Jewish life. It is Meaning your base of Leib's plan is actually working. It's able to build um, educational facilities both with intels and it spreads to the area. Um, even though it sounds like as far as his educational institutions and girls' schools and a newspaper and a secular study and all this stuff, it sounds like Rebbe Leib was a real liberal. He was not a liberal at all. He was quite an extremist. He was very anti-Zionist, which is also unlike his son, Rebellion Mayor Bloch, who had a little more of a Zionist leaning to him. And Rebbe Leib Bloch actually once gave a very extreme speech against the opening of Hebrew University in 1925. He was a big member, leader in Agudas Yisro, um, and, uh, um, and, uh, and everything that involved uh, that on the national level. Um, during the, the um, golden age of Tells, they attracted the, some of the greatest minds into the yeshiva. The yeshiva grew after Yosef Leib Blach 
died in 1930. His son, Rebbe Blach, who, along with most of the Tazi Shiva and Rebbe Zalman Blach, and most of the Rebbeim, Rebbe Zerila Benovich, most of them were killed uh, by the Nazis later on when Tavz was wiped out. But he takes over the yeshiva. The yeshiva grows in the 1930s to over 400 students. That's just the main yeshiva, besides for all the growing and maintaining all the other institutions that I mentioned. One of the famous students of the yeshiva at that time is someone who really deserves his own uh, podcast, the Tavrigger Ilui, the Ilui, the genius from Tavrigger, Matul Pargramansky. And he became a superstar of the yeshiva world. He actually spent a lot of time in Tells. He was also in, in Kelm, he was in Kovna, he was in Riga with Chabar, he was in Haida in Belgium, he was, he was everywhere. And then he survived the Kovna ghetto, but he's really a fascinating story and deserves his own, his own time. But he spent quite a bit of time in Tells, or Matche Gifter, um, would speak emotionally and with a lot of feeling about Ramatu Pagamansky and the stories that he had with him and what an amazing personality and genius and unique person that he was. So perhaps we'll get to him uh, another time. But I'll end off really with a, a powerful story. Tells is an empire at this time. It is changing the face of Lithuanian traditional Jewish life. Their leaders on the national scene they're producing teachers, they're producing rabbeim, they have producing rabbis, they, they have everything. And then, eventually, the Nazis in 1941 are to wipe out the entire place, but the destruction begins even before that. There's a year in Lithuania that we often overlook because once the Nazis came, they wipe out everything in Lithuania in the summer of 1941. By the end of 1941, close to 90% of Lithuanian Jewry was gone. But there was a year in Lithuania at the beginning of the war that the Soviets took over. And Lithuania was under Soviet control, became actually incorporated into the Soviet Union for close to a year. And the Soviets already started, started and were, to, were quite successful at snuffing out Jewish life even before the Nazis come. And in 1940, they shut down the Tel Yeshiva, the Soviet Russian communists. And Rebellion Mayor Bloch, in a very moving and powerfully emotional scene, he takes the Sefer Torah, the start to take the Sefer Torah out of the Aron Kaidish. And everyone around is davening and crying. They're about to leave the yeshiva. The Soviet police have given them a couple of hours to get everything out. And Rebellion Meir Blach is standing in front of the Aron Kaidish with the Aron Kaidish open and taking the Sefer Torah out. And he cries out. He said, This is the third time that I'm taking out the Sefer Torah. He said, Hashem. I took out the Sifrei Torah from the Aron Kaidish and tells by World War I we thought we would have to leave. I took it out a second time when there was a big fire in Tells and it burned down the building. And now it's the third time that I'm taking out the Sifrei Torah. He says, Hashem, the first two times I was successful in bringing the Sifrei Torah back. Hopefully, this third time that I'm forced to take the Sifrei Torah out, I should also be successful in being able to put it back. And this third time, unfortunately, did not come, take place in Tells itself. Tells was later destroyed, and they were not able to put back the Sefer the third time. But Rebellion Mary Bloch himself, who was able to escape and is able to get out, even losing most of his family, he was able to rebuild, and he put the, the, the Sefer Torah in the Aaron, I don't know if it was that one, but in a figurative sense, in Tells, in Cleveland, 
where he was able, together with Ramatul Katz, Ramat Gifter, and others, to be able to rebuild Tells, and Tells continues to be with us till today. So that's another little bit about Tells Yeshiva. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to all these wonderful places and hear about these amazing people of our glorious past. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites at Google Tunes, Google Play, excuse me, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.